I'd like to start out in Romans chapter 5 tonight. Before I begin, though, uh, Brother Terry Miller, would you ask the Lord to bless the time of preaching? Amen. Now, Sunday, I believe it was, I, I had mentioned three verses. Uh, one of them was Romans 5 8, one of them was 1 John 3 16, and the other one was John 3 16. And it was just in passing, and uh, it was about the love of God being manifested. And a little did I know that the Lord was, was planting a seed in my mind that was going to actually turn into a little bit of a study for me. And uh, it, it was in the middle of the night, he woke me up and, and gave me a verse, bam, just like that, and like some really good understanding of that verse. I don't know if anybody has ever had that. It, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't anything hooky like that. But I, I woke up and I had this verse in my mind, and it's just like, oh, that's what that is. And so me, like a silly nitwit, I didn't write it down. But I woke up five minutes later, and I, what was that verse? Okay, that was that. Yes, okay. And then I went back to sleep, and I woke up ten minutes later. What was that verse? Okay, that was it. Yes, okay. And then I went back to sleep. And I remembered that all the way through the morning and wrote it down. Now, that particular verse has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. That was just, that was just extra. That was just free for you all to let you know that, you know, God's still speaking to this, this fool of a man up here. But... As I was pondering these things, that verse that I looked at and everything was, was kind of all culminated together. And I just want to go through this of the idea of love manifested. All right, what is love manifested? We're going to see the love of God manifested in these three verses. We're going to look at these things. We're going to look at another verse in 1 John. We're just going to pull this apart a little bit and then we're going to apply it to a verse that when I preached through 2 Corinthians, I did not have Comfort in understanding, okay? And those of you who've been studying the Word of God for any amount of time, you know, you go down through something and you're like, okay, yeah, I've got a good handle on that. The Lord and I have labored in that together and he's shown me this and this and this. And so that is, that is what that is. But there's one aspect of a verse that I, I've always just kind of, just, I don't got it, you know? Well, I think I have it now, okay? So when we get to the end, we're going to see that. That's the hook to keep you, keep you interested till the end. Because uh, uh, I, I apologize if it's a little dry tonight. I'm just I'm a little cloudy. I'm just not feeling too good. So we're, we're going to get through this, though. But Romans chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is, this is after the explanation of all these things of, you know, while we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. And then he says, but God. But God commendeth his love towards us. When you commend something, when you get a, a letter of commendation, when I went to a clavic and we had to cross the border, I had certain letters of commendation, one from the church in a clavic, one from our church, and one from another church that had written saying, Pastor Seely is going up to minister in, this, in the town of a clavic, 
Uh, he is a duly ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has our, our authority as being sent, and he has the authority of being received from, from that church and to that church and all that. And the border wanted to see that. Customs wanted to see those things. They wanted to know, okay, why is this man coming into our country? So I had those letters of commendation saying, this is a good man. He's doing what he says he is going to be doing. And here are two proofs to prove that, right? Mouth of two witnesses, right? It, and it worked. Didn't have a single bit of problem getting across the border. Didn't have a single bit of problem coming back home, all right? Lord made all those things come out. But a letter of commendation is basically saying, this is a good thing. When you commend somebody, you say, hey, you know what? You did a great job on that. That, that, that was an excellent thing that you did. You handled that situation succinctly. You, you handled it absolutely perfectly. And so that is a commendation. So what does it mean that God commended his love toward us? He said, this is a good thing. He showed his love to us in a way that he said, this is a good thing. Now, why did he have to do that? Because the way that he showed us his love was a terrible thing. It was the death of his son. Look at this. For God commendeth his love towards us. And by the way, that ETH, again, I, I, can't, I can't hammer these things enough. He commended it back then 2,000 years ago. He commended it all the way up through the centuries. He commends it today, and he'll continue to commend it until the day of Jesus Christ and beyond. He commendeth, filling all the tenses, and it's an ongoing tense. Meaning, he didn't just send his son to die once, and then that's it, and then he's never going to show his love again. No, every time you look at the death of Jesus Christ, you see the love of God as a good thing. Now look at this. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the death of Jesus Christ is how God showed us his love. You want to know what the love of God looks like? You look at the death of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. You get into the Psalms, you get into the prophets, you get into the law of God, you get into the, Le the book of Leviticus, you get into De Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, you get into Genesis, you get into all of that Old Testament. And you look at the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ, and that is the love of God. Now let's next go to the uh, First John chapter three. It's just a little bit of a, a precept to lay down, and then we're going to build on this precept now. First John chapter three. Uh, we'll start at verse thirteen, but verse sixteen is the main verse I want to look at here tonight. 1 John 3 and 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now, we won't go into great depth of detail in those things, uh, when we went through this in uh, went through First John in Thursday night Bible study, we spent about an hour and twenty minutes dealing with these verses right here, and uh, I believe the Lord has used it very effectually. So, if that's something that that is is uh, sparked your interest or something, hmm, I want to look into that further. 
get on our sermon audio, you look up 1 John in that series, and you find I, I listed all those things out by verse, what we had done. You get in there to ver, the verses you know, 13 to 15, and you listen to through those things and follow through with your Bible and study those things out. But in verse 16, it says this, Hereby, wow, hereby perceive we the love of God. All right, so he's about to tell us how we can perceive the love of God. You know, when, when somebody's upset, all right, let's, just, let's just think about this. Your sister runs in the house. You and her were playing outside with the cat. And you took the cat by the tail and dunked it in a bucket of water. And she was all upset at you. And she ran in the house. And she told your mother. And all of a sudden, you hear from the house... Philip? And then you walk in the house and she's standing there with a very stern look on her face. And from that, you can perceive that she is not happy. That's the definition of perceive. So how, do we, how do we perceive the love of God? How do you perceive the love of God? Well, the same way that God commendeth his love towards us. Look at this. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. You will not find a verse that says so clearly that Jesus Christ is God than that verse right there. That God is Jesus Christ because he said, hereby perceive we the love of God because he, who? God laid down his life for us in the person of Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of other places you can go, but if you ever get stuck and shoved into a corner, just remember, all right, John 3.16, all right, 1 John 3.16, bam, right there. Jesus is God. But hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And then he goes on to say this, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, why I started at verse 13 to read that is because of this idea between love and hate. And that you ought not to hate. And if, if you do have hatred in your life toward your brother, and you go to those, those uh, uh, Pharisees and all that, well, who is my brother? Everyone. If you have hatred in your heart, what does the word of God say? Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And then he goes on to say, And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. If you have hatred in your heart, you can't have eternal life in your heart. They're incompatible. Now, you can't have eternal life and then obtain hatred. But you can have hatred and then obtain eternal life. And what happens is when you obtain that eternal life, the love of God fills you. And the love of God fills you beyond belief, beyond what you could ever possibly imagine. My wife gives her testimony of that was how God saved her. How God proved she was lost was because she didn't have love for her husband. And God saved her by just simply showing her that she couldn't love me. But she could love me if God did it through her. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ was all she needed. 
At that point, Jesus Christ was the only thing that she needed. And the love of God filled her, and I'm telling you what, I've never known love in my life like I do now for my wife. And that's the love of God. I I find it interesting, we sang, this is my father's world, but right across the page from that was the love of God. And uh, she was playing that to open, and I was just kind of singing it in my head. And it's interesting also, this is another side bend, uh, in the Blue Book, if you look up the love of God, that song, the words are just a little bit different. And it, uh, it explains very clearly who those two bound down with care were. Okay? So if you're ever interested, you look up in that blue hymnal and look up the love of God, and you'll figure out who those two bowed down with care are. Um, but let's, let's go back into this. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So the death of Jesus Christ is how we perceive the love of God. That's how you know that God loves you, is you see the death of Jesus Christ. And it's always according to the scripture. Why? Because that's what the gospel is. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures, as Paul said. Now I want you to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 14, very familiar passages. So don't let your mind automatically default. Okay? This, this is a danger of, if there is a danger in growing up in church, is that your mind will default. You'll see something and you'll, your mind will automatically make that conclusion, bam, that's what this is. Okay? And it might be the right, right and proper conclusion. But the problem with our conclusions is that God usually wants to show us something a little deeper and we're settled on our conclusions, so we switch God off. And we just, we don't listen anymore. We may be listening, but we don't hear anymore. So let's look at this. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now what is he speaking of there in that lifting up? How was the serpent lifted up? On a cross. He was lifted up high. This he spake of his death. And as we see Jesus Christ lifted up, he said, if I be lifted up, later on he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And then after that it says, this spake he of his death. And so he's speaking of him being lifted up on the cross here. And what's very amazing to me is this thing of the, those, those fiery serpents, serpents, that's what was killing the people. And so God, to show the picture of Jesus Christ in that fiery serpent that was killing, Aaron made that brazen serpent and lifted it up. And what it was, was it was the likeness of what was killing them. And so that's why God was manifested in the flesh. So that he could be lifted up in the likeness of what's killing you, yourself. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. As we looked at in, in Hebrews 2.14 in, in Thursday night Bible study, it says that as, children, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, so he took part of the same. Then we just on a whim said, hey, you know, well, let's, what's the rest of that? You know, what, uh, what does the... Uh, what, what do the other versions say about that? Um, and uh, I just had Theron look up on the ESV, and uh, it said that, um, 
Well, I'll tell you what, let me, let me, let me turn there and, and quote you all of the King James, and then we'll, we'll see what the, the other version says. Um, Hebrews 2.14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And you wonder why part. Like, I, I had had that underlined, and I wondered why the part of the same. But he didn't take both the flesh and the blood. Because it was God's blood. He only took the flesh. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was God's blood. It was eternal blood. It was perfect. It was not stained by sin. If he had taken part of flesh and blood, if he had, he had taken those both, then he would have the sin-stained blood of Adam in him because he took part of his flesh and part of his blood. But it says he only took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. And that's a past tense, had. Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And what the ESV did was it took it and it said that he took, uh, he was a partaker of, of these things, I think is how it, it put it. Do you have it there, Siren? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might, through death he might destroy all right. So, did you did did you notice the two things there? He took part. He took the the same things, both things, flesh and blood. And then, in that, the devil still has the power of death. In the ESV, the devil still has the power of death. In the King James Bible, Jesus Christ has the keys of death and hell. And I don't say this to be critical. I say this to put. Side by side, if you're going to build doctrine off of your Bible, which is what you should be doing, because if you're not building doctrine off your Bible, you're building it off of what some other man has told you. So take what your Bible actually says and let it teach you about God, about man, about sin, about death, about hell, about Satan, about the blood of Jesus Christ, all, all of that. Let it build that thing in you. And when you look at this verse, in Hebrews 2.14, in the King James Bible, he only took part of the same. Because he didn't take part of the blood. He wasn't a partaker of the blood of Adam. Had he been, his blood was not perfect. And the devil no longer has the power of death. But, it, and another side note on that, uh, as I was looking at uh, the NASB in those things, in 1995, the dev they had that the devil had the power of death, uh, in the NASB 20, uh, they gave the power of death back to the devil because it says has. So it's just those subtle things um, that somebody might say, oh, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Well, it, it does if you're going to believe your Bible and actually build doctrine off your Bible rather than just off of what man says. So this, this is, these are things you got to work out in your mind. At any rate, uh, back into this, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. In that likeness, yeah, having no sin of his own. And he was lifted up to show you the love of God. Now, we've gone through this thing before about charity. We've, we've, we've explained the difference between love and charity. And we're going to do that again because it's, it's prudent with our, our study tonight. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
We're going to let God define charity, and then we're going to see where that, where that applies in what we're looking at here tonight. 1 Corinthians 13.1 Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And now we're going to figure out what charity is. These are, these are the attributes of charity. Now, the world's image of charity is what was just described here, only... If charity's not involved, there's, there's nothing to it. Giving, sacrificing, giving of yourself, all of that. That's, that's a, you know, going overseas and building houses in, you know, a third world country. That's what the world pictures as charity, handing out food packets and, and that type of thing, handing out clothing. That's, that's charity according to the world's definition. But God's definition is, is different because you can do all of those things. Without charity. You just read that in those verses. Look at verse 4. This is God's definition. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This is God's definition of what charity is. These are the attributes of charity. This is what charity looks like. And I'm going to propose to you here tonight that charity is what love looks like. Charity is love manifested. I could tell my wife that I love her. I, I can't remember who it was. Some family member quipped and, and, and joked that, you know, hey, I, I told her I loved her at the altar, and if anything ever changed, I would, you know, I'll, I'll let her know. Do, do you remember who that was? Or is that just a, a joke that you say? Okay, there we go. Knowing Bruce, that's a funny thing, Okay. You know he loves his wife. But if I were to just tell her one time, hey, I love you, or if I were to tell her a thousand times a day, I love you, but never do any of this, it's a lie. She doesn't know that I love her. And by the way, love fails all the time. So many people will go to a divorce court and say, you know what, I love them, but I just can't live with them. Why? Because there's no charity. There's, there's none of this suffering long. There's none of this kindness. There's, no, no, there, there's always envying. It, there's vaunting itself up. There's, there's being puffed up. All of these things. This, this is what is missing in those things. So if you want to show your wife that you love her, husbands, show her charity according to God's definition. Charity is the manifestation of love. And so, 
From what we looked at first, in Romans 5, 8, for God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3, 16, uh, hereby perceive we the love of God, that he died for us. And in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That the love of God is manifested in the death of Jesus Christ. So the death of Jesus Christ is God's charity to you. You want to know what charity looks like to God? You look at the death of his son. And that's not even the punchline. We just laid another precept on what top of what we were looking at. And now I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to look, start it right at verse 8. He says this, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now that phrase right there, always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that was the phrase I had no clarity on the last time I preached through this. I preached the passage, but I didn't preach the doctrine of the first part of that verse because I did not understand it. But looking at what we just looked at in Romans 5, 8, 1 John 3, 16, John 3, 16, we could have even gone to uh, 1 John 4, 9. It was another, another proof verse of this. In that... The charity of God is shown in the death of Jesus Christ. So God's idea of charity to him was the death of his son. It makes perfect sense why he says, always a bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The dying of the Lord Jesus, born in your body, doesn't mean that you get nails in your hands and in your feet and a spear in your side, crown of thorns on your head. It doesn't mean that at all. What does it mean? It means you live that same death every day. You show the charity of God every single day. That's what that means. That in your life, you are showing the death of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Does that make a little more sense now? Having that death of Christ be that picture of charity in your life. That he died. He gave himself for you. One who would spit in his face and one who cursed him and mocked him. You were the one that, that he became on that cross. For the joy that was set before him, that's you. For the joy that was set before him, despised the cross, or endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father on high, or the throne of majesty on high. And so in that, you see that thing right there in verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now, what's interesting is when you go back and you look at those other verses, you see a death, but then you also see a life. You see death, but then you also see life. 
You see death and you also see life. And look what he continues to say here. Verse 11, for we which are, uh, which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The life of Jesus Christ is the proof that there is a life that has been changed. That hope of the resurrection, that new creature that you are in Christ Jesus, and that Christ Jesus is in you, that new creature is that life lived. And in that, we are bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus. We live a life of charity because that's how God showed us his love, was sending his son to die. And Paul is likening that same dying of the Lord Jesus to that life lived in charity. Suffering long, vaunting not yourself up, thinking no eve, all of those things there in the first part of or 1 Corinthians 13. Showing that, listen, it's more than just a word. It's more than just uh, saying the words. It's more than even just serving or giving or doing. It's a complete life of sacrifice. You look at the life of Paul. Did he ever sacrifice? Do you think maybe the life of Paul, not necessarily Saul, the Pharisee, which he sacrificed before, he gave, he gave alms, he gave tithes, he did all of those things. Why? Because the law commanded it. But when Jesus came, love and charity were the things that were driving him. And so, if he was to be beaten, if he was to be shipwrecked, if he was to be stoned, if he was to be you know, thrown in prison, if he was to be mocked and, and criticized and thrown out of a city, if he was to have all these things done to him, he considered it the dying of the Lord Jesus. This is how I'm showing my charity. Because, think of this, when he, was, when he was beaten and thrown out of Lystra, stoned, left for dead outside of the city, that, that very well may be that point where he says, I knew a man about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I know not, you know, who was caught up into the third heaven and all of that, into the paradise of God, and all of that. That might have been where he was, was stoned to death, and that was his time in that. And so with that, for him to die, that, that was gain. It was just gain. There was, there was no struggle there. There was no, there was no arguing there. There was no, uh, no, no problem with that. Why? Because he wanted people to know Jesus. He wanted people to know who he was and what he did in him. And it didn't matter what they did to him. It didn't matter what they said to him. It didn't matter where they put him or how despitefully they treated him. He wanted them to know the Jesus of God. He wanted them to know that this Christ that suffered and was raised from the dead is Jesus Christ. That man, that Nazarene. And so it didn't matter what happened to him. So he was always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, showing the love of God. I want you to go to Philippians 3.10 and we'll be done. Uh, you know, let's start, let's start at verse 1, and we'll read down through that. Because this, this kind of reinforces what I've, what I've just said here. Chapter 3, verse 1 in Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. 
For we are the circumcision which worship God in, in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. All right, so he, he had no confidence in his flesh as being a Jew. He had no confidence in the works of the law. There, there, it was the deadness of the law to him now. He had no confidence in that. His confidence was in Jesus Christ. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man other, uh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And here's a, where he's going to tell you why in the sight of God he was able to trust in his flesh before Jesus. But when Jesus came, the commandment came, sin revived, and he died. Had Jesus not come, and Saul the Pharisee would have died, he would have gone to Abraham's bosom. Why? Well, because he was doing everything that God was requiring by the law. Everything. He was, he was believing the promises of God. He was obeying the law. He was keeping the law. He was doing all the things that were necessary according to the word of God. But when Jesus came, he even said, Had I not come, they had not sin. But now that I've come, they have no cloak for their sin. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord." He's willing to count all of that loss. Everything. Why? Because he found that everything outside of Christ is loss. Anything outside of Jesus Christ is loss. Why? Because he said, without me, you can do nothing. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Christ was the prize. You ever consider that, that phrase, that I may win Christ? Meditate on those words just for a day. It's not too long. It's only, you know, probably, what, 15 hours of being awake. Maybe if you're one that likes to stay up really late, you know, maybe 18 hours of being awake. Let's just, uh, it wouldn't be too hard to meditate on that. Just have that in the back of your mind, that I may win Christ. I may win Christ. What did Paul mean by that? That I may win Christ. What does it mean to win Christ? Well, to win something means that you've succeeded in something and that that thing that you've won is the, is the prize. But you let those things run through your mind. You see what the Lord shows you. Verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. And that's what he was describing there, his own righteousness. That was what he had, and he counted it dung. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He wanted that righteousness that came from the faith of Christ. Because he had the faith of Christ. And he realized everything that he was doing was done. It was worthless. It was void and vain. And this is the whole purpose. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And here's the charity of God in the dying of the Lord Jesus born in his body, being made conformable unto his death. And in that you see the love of God manifested. You see charity 
in that. I believe that's what Paul is speaking of here. Living a life of living out that death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you see is the love of God manifested. All right? And so let the Holy Ghost apply it to your life however it needs applied. That's our study for tonight. Just, just something real simple, something real brief. Uh, but it was to me, it was just a couple of pieces that fell right into place that made those things that I've wondered about for a long, long time. Been chewing on them for a long, long time. The Lord just saw fit to finally give me the next two precepts. And I think that's, I think that's where we're at tonight. So we'll break up into our prayer groups. And uh, the men can go downstairs. Ladies, stay upstairs. And we'll meet up here afterwards.